All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I am joined by repeat guests Cameron Dawson and Bob Elliott. Guys, welcome back to the show. Hey there. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so I almost want to, before we were on here, you guys were going back and forth on some super interesting topics. So my uh, my instinct is to basically just get out of your way. But I, I would love to, maybe we just start at a super high level and get kind of a temperature check, sentiment check, just on how you think about markets are doing. And before we started, before we got on here on air, you were starting to talk about uh, just positioning in the market and how you might gauge positioning. So Maybe, Bob, I could start with you and kind of just put that question to you. What do you think people are thinking right now? The macroeconomic reality is that we sort of have two uh, cross-cutting issues that I think people are struggling to sort out exactly. And the first is that the sort of core of the macroeconomy continues to plug along pretty well. You know, nominal growth is very strong um, in, in the economy. Inflation is elevated. The unemployment rate is secularly low. You know, jobs keep getting added. And so we sort of if you, if you were just looking at the macro side of the economy, what you'd say is like, this looks like a, you know, reasonably good uh, later cycle dynamic that would engender a bit more tightening from the Fed in order to respond to it. And then you go to the other side and what, you know, the other cross cutting force is the concern about a significant financial crisis through the regional banks and others, and that that's starting to you know, and that we're starting to see a lot of cracks in the financial system. And so, you know, and that's a very different set of circumstances. Like the in one side, it looks like it should be, you know, very bullish for bonds and bearish for stocks. If you look at the financial crisis side and on the other side, if you look at the macro economy, you see, you know, a, a, a situation that should be very, you know, should be modestly bullish for stocks or certainly not that bearish for stocks. High nominal growth is generally pretty good and, you know, pretty bearish for bonds. And the reality is that, um, you know, when you net those two things out, we're seeing the market action that we're seeing probably, you know, tilted more towards the macroeconomic strength in the stock market and tilted more towards the financial, uh, the risk of a financial crisis in the bond market in terms of the in terms of the pricing. And so that's, you know, that that's sort of the overall dynamic that we see. And the real question is, which one of these two things, how are they going to net out? That's what we're all sitting here looking at. How are they going to net out? And we just get that repriced, you know, essentially every day people are fighting between those two narratives. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And, you know, my my general intuition there is that usually the bond market is slightly smarter than the stock market or tends to be uh, kind of get things right. So is, is that appropriate in this in this um, or do you think that's the way that it's going to play out in this exact scenario? And then, Bob, what can you tell us about kind of just the positioning in the market? And what do you think other how are other participants position for this exact scenario that you just laid out. Yeah, I mean, if you uh, there's certainly this belief that the bond market is the are the smart is the smart money. Um, certainly, if you looked at the bond market over the course of the last 18 months, you wouldn't say that it was the smart money. It's been it's been wrong the, a lot. Yeah. It's been the dead wrong money. Um, Ethically. And, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, so I wouldn't necessarily be running to believe the bond market in this circumstance. I think if you look at the most sophisticated asset managers, you know, what we do at Unlimited is track how hedge funds are positioned. There really was coming into the beginning of the year uh, a positioning that was around sort of very, very late cycle, higher for longer dynamics that would engender increased tightening. Um, that was a pretty good set of positions through, you know, 
March 10th until we had an unexpected deflationary, you know, debt crisis. Um, and a lot of that positioning reversed and those funds actually got, you know, many of them got squeezed, particularly in the, the macro funds got squeezed and basically washed out a lot of those positions. And so now when we look at how funds are positioned in general, they're kind of positioned for a little bit of everything, right? Pretty diversified uh, in terms of holding some stock risk, holding some bond risk, holding some short rate risk, a little bit of gold. Um, because of the cross-cutting, you know, it's, it's pretty uncertain exactly how this is all going to play out. And so uh, a diversified portfolio, not particularly tilted to one outcome or another, um, that's run at lower than average risk right now is basically how it's turning out. So hedge funds, they're unsure, just like the rest of us. That's right. That's right. They are as unsure as, uh, as the rest of us. <laughs> when I was an equity uh, analyst, I used to call them my high conviction neutrals. <laughs> That's right. That's great. That's right. They are definitely like that right now. So if the bond market hasn't been the steadiest predictor of what's actually going to happen, Cameron, can I turn it over to you? Usually you have such a great take of what's kind of going under the hood in the equity market. What are you kind of watching or thinking about right now? Well, I think the first thing that jumps out when you think about price action under the hood of the indices is breadth. And Rep is one of those funny things where it can be both a positive and a negative signal depending on where you are in the cycle. And it takes a lot of context. It can never be the sole input. But there's been a lot of work by the great technical analysts that are out there on the street talking about how rep is significantly worse today than it was in the February high. So you're trading at the same level in the market, and yet many more stocks are not back to those February highs, or they're actually trading below their longer-term trend line, so using the 200-day moving average. So the stat that jumped out to me this morning was Chris Verona at Strategus. He was saying, look, only 50% of the stocks within the technology index, which has been the monster index here to date, up 18%, really the dominant driver of index, of overall market returns. Only about 50% are trading above their 200-day moving average. You compare that to the February high, and 85% were trading above their 200-day. So what that tells you is that there is deterioration under the surface. And of course, you spend enough time on Twitter and, and you get these conspiracies, hello, Apple's holding everything up. And, and what's interesting from that breadth perspective is how does it resolve itself? Do you have a scenario where the broader market starts to catch up to the indices and you see this period where breadth just resolves over time and resolves positively? Or is it more of a function of shaky footing? And the conclusion on that is that it's kind of a 50-50 split. Jeff DeGraff has done work on this uh, over at RINMAC, and he talks about how it's about 60% of the time it resolves positively, 40% of the time it resolves negatively. And that's not really helpful. Now, then when we when we get to this question though of, you know, of what happens next, I think we have to ask ourselves why we have seen breadth become so narrow in this market. What's been the driver of that? And how much of that driver can continue versus reversing? So we know tech has been really powerful because it has the perception of being a flight to safety trade as well as having the potential to give you upside growth. Sort of your have, have your cake and eat it to trade. So if you look in past recessions, the past two, COVID and the great financial crisis, tech was defensive to the downside from an earnings perspective, but then gave you leverage to the upside when the market eventually recovered. 
unlike utilities and staples, defensive to the downside, but didn't give you that upside leverage. Now, of course, the 2000 recession, completely different story. Um, tech did much more poorly, but you know, okay, let's let's use let's use recency bias here. So there's obviously that inflow happening, but there's also for the flight to safety, there's also an aspect of the dynamic around liquidity and interest rates and the benefit that tech has to lower interest rates and all of these bets that the Fed is going to become supportive of markets, pivot, provide liquidity, that becoming something that people say, well, I have to own tech because if you look back, tech has been very correlated to real interest rates and the really blow off top that happened in tech trading versus the market and really growth overall versus the broader market happened when the Fed pivoted in late 2018, early 2019, and real interest rates started their descent. They started at positive 1% and ended at negative 1%, kind of at that peak COVID surge of liquidity, surge of easy policy. So one of the things that's interesting is tech is now trading at a 40% premium to the market. That's even higher than it did during the COVID boom. And it's at the highest premium since back in the days coming out of the tech bubble. So I do wonder how much of the easing of policy that's being reflected in probabilities in the bond market is already being reflected in tech valuation multiples. And yes, I get it. Like give you all the credit in the world for having good earning stability and growth potential. But there is a price that you have to pay for that or a discipline around the price. And so if we lose that part of the market and bringing it full circle to breadth, I promise I'm getting there, which is that if you start to see pressure on valuations because of this realization, as Bob was talking about, that, hey, maybe we aren't falling off a cliff. Maybe the Fed isn't justified to cut rates by almost 200 basis points by this time next year yet. Um, then maybe you start to see that renewed pressure on tech valuations, and then thus you get some of that shakiness show up in the broader market just because you don't have that being the ballast for the indices. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. I think that's super well said, Cameron. And my what I found myself thinking about when you were just speaking there is kind of the the collision of these two extremely powerful narratives that you see out there in the market. One being kind of this collapse of the everything bubble. I mean, how much have we heard about this? Kind of this is the extension of Dalio's like the beautiful deleveraging that we're supposed to be getting, the collapse of the everything bubble against, you know, to your point, I do think a lot of folks out there are thinking, hey, if it's not the collapse of the everything bubble, then guess what? I've seen this before, right? We all remember what happened in 2020 when the Fed turned on their money printer and we remember which assets did well. So I guess, is is that a fair way to kind of sum up that some of the uncertainty right now is kind of trying to parse out like, where are we in that cycle and which narrative sort of ends up winning there? Well, it worked 
every other time this past cycle. It worked that at the slightest bit of wobble or concern about growth that the Fed quickly started adding liquidity. 2011, 2016, coming out of industrial recession and China deleveraging, you know, Fed didn't raise interest rates. They were guiding to four. They only did one in 2016 and paused. But that boosted markets. Uh, 2018, of course, as we've already talked about, 2020, like it's been the right trade. And it's been the right trade for bond markets to get ahead of the Fed and really bend the Fed to its will to say, nope, gone too far. And you're going to be cutting interest rates soon. And to your point is that that playbook of going into growth assets, going into risk has worked really well. And the question that we constantly ask is, could it be different because of inflation? Meaning inflation is a new variable that where the Fed was able to play like one dimensional chess with their decision making by just saying, look, we care about growth, we care about employment and we care about financial stability. Now, all of a sudden, things get a lot more complicated when you're worried about price stability. And it's not just price stability today, but it's price stability in the future, meaning that if the Fed were to cut, do you have inflation come back? If you still have a tight labor market and a tight demand market and all of you know, all of that kind of concern of of having it reemerge, so you know it 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 I can understand why the market's pricing things the way that they are because it's worked every other time and is it different because of inflation that could remain to be seen. It really depends on your take of if you think is if inflation is is uh, uh, secular or if it's just cyclical and it'll be behind us soon. And I think you have to make a stance on that in order to believe the bond market one way or another. Yeah, I, I love that slightly uncharitable, but I think pretty true uh, depiction of 1D chess being played because I think even, even before the recent stress in the banking sector, there was kind of this observation that the Fed can't have their cake and eat it too. And they can get up there and say all they want, right? That we want uh, to protect the labor market and have price stability. But we all kind of knew that there was a natural tension there. And I think that has only been thrown into more sharp relief as stress in the banking sector has materialized in an extremely real way. And maybe we could get into, I would love to, I know it was, uh, you know, was a little while ago now, but I would love to get your take on the most recent FOMC, because that's when we got the 25 bips that we all kind of thought we were going to get. This is being called the hawkish pause, right? Because because Powell said he's not, he doesn't care about the stress in the banking sector. And basically, boom, right after that, we got PacWest. So I would love to know, maybe Bob, I can sort of turn it back over to you. I mean, is this sort of the, the market calling the Fed's bluff here and we can expect kind of more pain? Do you think they'll be able to keep rates at, at where they've raised them? What, what's your sort of thoughts on where we are in the, the, the rate cycle? You've got to go to the macroeconomic data, um, whether you like it or not. The Fed makes its decision based upon what it sees, not by and large based upon what it thinks will happen. And if anything, um, it's probably sticking closer to the script around what it sees after um, whiffing on transitory inflation. And so they're certainly not going to be making big prognostications about what's going to happen with inflation or growth and then bet on it at this point. They're going to be backward looking and looking at the data that they see. And like, look, nominal final sales in the first quarter was 7.5% annualized growth. The unemployment rates at 
uh, PCE inflation is at 5%. Unit labor cost growth is at 5 to 6%. Fed Atlanta wages is at, you know, 6%. Like, like, were it not for a few of these regional banks, like, it is, like, tightening 25 basis points, I would, you know, were it not for these regional banks, you'd expect them to be tightening 25 basis points for the next four meetings, right? Like, that's what the macroeconomic data suggests. It doesn't suggest uh, quitting in terms of the, in terms of the hikes. And so I think one of the, you know, and to, and to be clear, like, if you look at what's priced in, what's priced in is not just tightening to this point, hold the line for a while and see how things play out. What's priced in is a reversal, a very quick reversal in terms of the tightening cycle and a shift to meaningful easing when those macroeconomic, uh, when those macroeconomic data look the way that they do. And I think, you know, one of the things that's very interesting. So the, the big picture is like, what's the Fed looking at? They're basically looking at that and they're making a decision. They, they know that there was a, fine, you know, that there was a crisis, a crisis in the, in the banks, right? They knew what was going on there. And in March, they chose to hike. Right. And in May, they chose to hike. And so I think what we're starting to see more and more is that is that test of the reaction function, which is very important. This is the first real test of the reaction function. And what we're seeing is they're responding to the data that they're seeing and they're not preemptively uh, slowing their pace on the expectations that there's going to be a huge growth collapse. They're not they're just not doing it. I would love to get your your sort of thoughts here on what happens in a typical, I mean, every cycle feels a little bit atypical, but I was just looking at this this chart on basically how the stock market has reacted to Fed interest rate cuts. And what's priced out here is so we're looking at the Dow Jones Industrial Average uh, performance next year um, after cuts. And obviously, you know, cuts are about a given. You know, we we might expect that rates are, are going to be held higher for a long period of time. But what we're sort of looking at here is how how the Dow Jones has done in in the face of rate cuts when there's a recession, um, when there's not a recession in the next year, and then just kind of a, an average. And in general, if if you're not following along via video, it's 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 basically exactly what you might expect. It's generally uh, stock prices do well, you know, post rate cuts. Um, obviously, a little bit worse if there's a recession. So. I would love to kind of get your reaction to this chart. And then, Bob, I know you've been pretty outspoken about um, not thinking that a recession might be in our near future. So I would love to kind of get your response here. And then if we could transition to just your thoughts on recession and, and how imminent that may or may not be. The Fed shifts policy in general or responsibly shifts policy when there's an economic slowdown. And when there's an economic slowdown, the easing of policy creates a some relief, but typically it takes some pain to get there, to get them to respond, to get them to do what they're doing. And that, so you need, you need pain, then relief from the Fed, and then a rise in stocks. That's the order. And I, and when I look at what's going on in the market right now, it feels like we're putting the cart before the horse. It's like, we're already ready for the relief rally. Like before we've had the pain, there is no pain. Where is the pain, right? Like stocks are down you know, a little bit from peak, right? You know, I don't know, 10, 15% from peak from, to be clear, like a peak that was multiples higher than it was coming out of the 08 recession. I mean, this is not like, you know, stocks are not cheap. 
They're not low. They have not fallen a lot, right? This is this is a very uh, elevated stock market price. And, and, and Cameron, you've talked about the valuations at length. Every time I feel like I hear you talk, you're talking about how the valuations are so high. Um, and I think it's just important to keep in people's minds that that is a reality of what's going on with the stock prices. And so, um, you know, I think what that points to and in, in, in terms of the, the, the overall cycle, I think this is less about, you know, recession is an interesting question. The main thing to think about is like, what does it take for us to get the type of uh, slowing of inflation pressures that's necessary for the Fed to meet its mandate? That's the most important thing. And the answer is you have to have a significant loosening of the labor market to bring down those wages. That's what they need. It's, there's, there is no immaculate disinflation. There's certainly no immaculate disinflation at 3.4% unemployment with wages growing at 6 to 7%. Like, that's not how it works, just plain and simple. We all hope that, it, that there's something magical that will happen. In fact, some days it seems like Chairman Powell is hoping something magical will happen, but it's not the way it works. Right. The way, and and so what's the answer to your question? Like there will be pain. There will be a recession. That recession will happen first. And then the Fed will start to meaningfully ease monetary policy because it will help them achieve their inflation objectives. And so um, I think the main the main story there is either what's happened is we've had enough tightening to get us there, which I don't think we have, given, you know, nominal final sales is at seven and a half percent. And it's largely unchanged over the last two years and unemployment is the way that it is. So we probably need more. But even if we haven't got even if we already gotten enough, right, you still have to go through the recession period in order to get the relief, in order to get the stock market rally. If you take a step back and you ask yourself, why are forward returns so strong coming out of recessions, out of market lows? It's because earnings get gutted. And they get gutted in expectations, but also activity. So you get things like pent-up demand that gets created. So all of a sudden, people stop buying what they need, and you get a snapback of demand. So you get really good earnings growth on the other side, and you have easy comps. And so you, you're setting up for a powerful period of earnings coming out of a low. The second one is that valuations usually get gutted as well. So you have the first part of valuation driven by fundamentals. But then the second part of valuations moving lower is oftentimes very emotional. It's about the uncertainty about future growth. And so you see low valuations get put on low earnings because people go into this, I don't know what to pay for this because I don't know where earnings are going to shake out. And when you have that combination, obviously, that's the hindsight being 2020. That's when you back up the truck. But it's really powerful when you think of I'm going to discount both the valuation and the earnings front. And if we go back to that October low, what's interesting is that we had it really discounted the earnings side of things. We got valuations lower. Were they screamingly cheap? No, but maybe we could argue why. 15 and a half to 16 times will be the low in valuations. We'll see. There could be some reasons because of kind of overall liquidity and index constitution why that that could be the low this time around. But the point is that you know you you did get valuations get washed out at that low, but earnings hadn't really gotten there. And that's to Bob's point, which is that if you have a recession, earnings are going lower. And so we're still in that process because I would argue that the earnings down cycle that we've seen today has been just driven by normalization of margins coming off of COVID peaks has actually nothing to do with a recession because, A, we're not in one now, as 
Bob was saying, nominal growth is still so strong. And remember, earnings are nominal. And so they've remained resilient. The only reason you're seeing down earnings is because margins are falling, but margins are falling just because revenue growth is going from growing double digits down to high single digits. And that pathway from revenue just moderating drives margin compression because of incremental margin dynamics. So back to why recession lows are so powerful. Earnings, valuations. The next one is sentiment and it's positioning, meaning that what happens is longer term reads on positioning get absolutely washed out. It's the most overused word, but the wall of worry gets created. People give up on the market. People don't care anymore. They can't take it anymore. They sell equity positions. We can watch it through household survey, um, has equity allocations from Federal Reserve data. AAII has allocation data. And all of those remain off their highs, but still relatively elevated versus every other major bear market low. Um, of course, institutional data tends to be a bit more higher frequency, so you can see them get very, very short. Um, but it, it, it's usually the households that create this potential because they're so short and or so underexposed that they have to get drawn back into the market. That's how you get multi-year bull markets. So I think when we put it all together, yes, last year we had the derating process coming out of bubble valuations out of the 2020, 21, early 2022 period. And I would agree with Bob very much that when you're going into a down cycle with higher valuations, the higher valuation you go in, the longer it takes for you to get back up to your prior highs because you don't immediately go back to prior bubble valuations. We didn't see the valuations that we reached from an equity standpoint on a PE basis that we reached in 1999-2000 again until the COVID era. So over 20 years to get back to bubble valuation. So that's why we could be in a world where markets can chug along and grow kind of at the pace of earnings. But if you're already bumping up against bubble level valuations, that kind of acts as a ceiling of where you get into the potential for forward returns and why we think sideways chop makes a lot of sense because you're stuck in this band where you don't get escape velocity until you get certainty about a recession. So recession probabilities fall materially and people, you say, okay, no recession, we're not having one for the next two years and earnings are going to actually deliver and, and grow you know, double digits like they're expected to next year. Then, okay, maybe you can break out above that as people mark estimates up, but you're already at the high end of valuation ranges that you reached prior to the pandemic. So it, it kind of it acts as a, just a dampener on your potential simply because you're already extended. And then to the downside, that's when you start saying, look, like if you do have a recession, estimates are too high and valuations are too high. And that's when you start comboing numbers that are, you know, get you to lower, lower targets. But then the last point on that is that right now we're dealing in a world of recession uncertainty, recession probabilities. That phase of things comes with recession certainty. When you see the whites of the eyes of it and people really start marking numbers down, but to Bob's point, you got to experience pain to get numbers to start moving lower before you experience the recovery. So a recession is not guaranteed, but I'd also argue it's not priced into equities. So it's not as if you know, you're know you getting this layup where everybody is pricing into dire of an outcome because it's certainly not reflected in valuations or earnings estimates. 
Hello, hello, everyone. Thank you all for listening to On The Margin. Just wanted to give you guys a heads up about a conference that we have coming up in the new year called Permissionless. I'm sure most of you have been there last year. Uh, it is the cultural event of the year. We had over 5,500 people down in Palm Beach. This year, we are moving to Austin, Texas. You know what they say about Texas. Everything's bigger in Texas. <laughs> Uh, so last year, we had a really great lineup of speakers. We had two co-founders of Robinhood, Vlad Tenev and Baiju Bot. We had Chris Dixon. We had some of the folks that have been on the show a whole bunch of times, Jim Bianco, Dan Tapiero. Just a phenomenal lineup of speakers, and you can expect the same this year. If you use Margin 10, you'll get 10% off on a ticket. Again, that's Margin 10, because I love you guys so much. Click the link at the bottom of the show notes. Hope to see you there in person. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, so shocking, right? Like people just don't want to deal with pain before we get to go right back to the party. I'm totally <laughs> surprised by that. Everything I know about human nature says the opposite. I'm, I'm showing a chart that I saw you you tweet out here on S&P earnings growth uh, sort of year over year. And this is projected all the way out to 2024. And as you noted here, they've been, you know, earnings projections for Q1 have been revised up a little bit, but on the year it's still negative. And analysts are pricing it a big rebound uh, that said in, 2024. So I would love if you could just kind of explain this chart and any any takeaways you think would be relevant for listeners. Yeah. If you be in the first quarter, but you don't raise full year guidance, then you are implicitly cutting guidance for the remaining quarters of the year. And that's kind of what's been happening since the beginning of this year. And actually what you can see here is that, okay, we this is these are estimates from analysts, so not guidance. Uh, but what you saw is a big beat to the first quarter and people held their guidance flat for the full year, their, their expectations flat for the full year. And what's interesting is that possibly that's because there's already a big recovery priced into the fourth quarter. You have earnings growth nearing nine mm-hmm. over nine and a half percent for the fourth quarter. So a recovery off of last year, which we had earnings, I think, coming in down four percent for the fourth quarter, 22 So there's some kind of easy comps that are baked in. But the other thing under the surface here that's not shown is that a lot of that recovery is just based on margins rebounding back to prior pandemic level peaks. And that's probably where we draw the biggest question mark of that, if that's possible, because remember, you know, as we talked about, earnings are nominal numbers. And in this under the surface, you don't have revenues going negative at any point because we're not in a recession. And so revenues aren't out, outright falling and you get the benefit of inflation. And so what this all is, is just margin dynamics. So when you roll that forward to 24, you still have the market expecting continued revenue growth, but then margins really rebounding back to pandemic level, pandemic levels. And again, that's where we would be doubtful if that's possible, simply because that pandemic level valuation or margin was really made possible by earnings and revenue top line growth growing at double digits, which was made possible by PPI being double digits and and having pricing power and inflation. So that's where you could see some some wobbles in the data, meaning that margins could surprise to the downside. But what's the source of surprises this past quarter? Margins. They were higher than expected. Why? Because inflation's higher than expected. Pricing power ended up being stronger than expected. So if the Fed is successful at bending down inflation, kind of the, the the funny caveat in that is that it takes away pricing power from companies and that's going to impact corporate margins. My, my favorite part about this chart, it's a little hard to tell just by by virtue of how the, the chart is structured, but this is a chart that goes up and to the right. If you look at it from the decrease in earnings in you know Q1, starting Q1 in 2023, all the way to 
you know, 2024, we're starting to see things kind of turn up. And, you know, you don't see many charts on Wall Street that look go down and to the right, I suppose. Um, so I would, I would they, they don't right let back. you publish those when you when they you don't let you publish them. them. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Hey, Got to push product somehow. Right? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Got to push product. So I would love to, I mean, Bob, can I turn it over to you and let's, um, I mean, how do these earnings sort of look, look like to you? And I guess like within the broader sense here is we're all like, to your point about waiting for pain, what's, what's in, what's not in these numbers, right? Is kind of the, the what I want to get to next is unemployment and just kind of the strength of the labor market here. So where does that all come into this data as well? Well, when I look at those numbers, uh, too high is what is what strikes me too high yeah. uh, and and of course they're always a little high because analysts are always rosier than the reality but i mean i think those numbers are really high and i think actually the um clarifying to me it, what how cameron was describing it which is this combination of expectations of relatively elevated nominal top line growth to continue plus plus bringing margins back to, you know, COVID level highs. And that seems uh, implausible would be a polite way of describing it. It seems implausible. Like you had basically, uh, I mean, not only have you had basically, you know, a secular rise in margins, which was, you know, significantly supported by the fact that um, labor, was being gutted, uh, particularly sort of um, middle income labor, you know, middle class labor was being gutted as far as uh, their their wage power uh, in the U.S. economy for the course of, you know, 20 or 30 years. And then you had a cyclical dynamic with COVID where a combination of fiscal stimulus, um, you know, and elevated inflation gave a lot of pricing power and a lot of uh uh, you know, a lot of a lot of ability to expand those margins like those dynamics are not going to be in place in the future. And so when I look at what's going on there, what I see is, you know, we're seeing increasing pricing power of labor. You know, we, we're, we're ju we've just shifted from negative real earnings growth to positive real earnings growth. And I think that's important because that's bad for companies, but that's good for demand. That can be confusing to people, which is like um, you can have a situation where that is that positive real earnings growth driven by tight labor markets and continued wage growth in the context of slowing top line growth for the companies is detrimental to margins, positive for the economy, positive for the labor market and indicative of the fact that we need more tightening. That's an interesting like that's a that is a complicated combination of things, but it's basically like a. a it's a double drag on the companies, right? Because not only does it drag the company, not only do the companies have to face a problem of decreasing margins because of wage strength, but they also face the Fed continuing to be aggressive and continuing to tighten. And so that, like, that's the combination that makes, when you look at that, those 24 numbers, they look implausible. That's what I'd say. They look implausible. Um, and they certainly look, I mean, yeah, they, they look impossible. That's all I got to say. <laughs> you know, and it, it all it obviously brings up 
questions about productivity, right? And labor productivity has been abysmal. Um, if you look at last week's jobs data, I mean, labor productivity is is awful. And so people are going, oh, but but what about technology? And could technology change the whole realm on this? And we really have a step change function higher in productivity because of things like AI. And probably in the long run, there's some like there will be a margin benefit. We do know companies talking about the ability to take high paying labor costs out because of the usage of some AI. Is it broad enough to impact whole S&P 500 margins? I, I don't think so yet. Um, and obviously, it brings back memories of the time in the mid 90s where the Fed had a big tightening cycle in 1994, paused and then eased rates right into a big productivity boom related to the internet bubble or internet boom. Um, but we have to remember, though, there was part of that internet boom that was a big capex cycle. And it was one of the reasons that earnings were so powerful is because companies had to spend real money. It actually wasn't about them saving money because of using the internet and, and having Excel now. Um, it was actually because you had to build out the physical infrastructure of the internet. And there was a big driver of earnings that came from that, all of the things built around doing that. And so I, I kind of sit and go, yeah, like AI is super exciting, but I don't know if I want to mark my numbers back to record margins because all of a sudden I think that a manufacturing company is going to reinvent the way that they do things using ChatGPT. I just I I don't know if I if I if I can fully endorse that. So I think the challenge that we have is that people are underappreciating just how good inflation was for margins. Margins were such a beneficiary of higher prices and pricing power because companies didn't have pricing power since the great financial crisis. And they would be miserable about it because they try to get they try to get price, which drops right down to the bottom line. But then they'd lose volume and companies are now in that scenario where they are sacrificing volume for price. However, overall, consumers and customers are still accepting higher prices. And the beautiful thing about higher prices is that they drive higher revenues, which drive incremental margins. So even if your costs are going up and we know everybody's costs are going up, the benefit to the margin line is still outweighed by the revenue growth. And so that's why we could get up to record operating margins in 21, where everybody goes, how can you be making money? There's all these disruptions, all the supply chain issues. You're paying so much. Well, no, because you got to charge so much. And that normalizing, because inflation's now normalizing, goods prices now normalizing, just points to the fact that we won't immediately return to those operating margins. And that's implausible seems to be the right word to, to, to label those expectations. The earnings reports where AI was mentioned, you know, the stocks like outperformed on the minute that the word AI was mentioned in the actual earnings call and stuff like that. And what that's reflective of is, frankly, just like systematic investing that is, you know, that is responding to what's going on, um, yeah. robotic responses to what's going on um, around sentiment. And so, you know, I think that that it's worth about that which is it has not, not that much to do with anything. Um, uh, you know, it's probably a marginal impact on the vast majority of companies. Um, as Cameron has said, it's probably a, you know, it's a bigger impact on the company built on 
um, finding information for people and serving it to them, uh, you know, in an easy way to write their papers and stuff. But like, that's a pretty tiny corner of the market, you know, like the person travel, leisure, pilots, you know, uh, truck drivers. I mean, there's just so much that's going on that's still, you know, you still need people. And the vast majority of people, you know, labor market is tight. The labor market is tight for college educated. The labor market's tight for professionally educated. The labor market's tight for, you know, those with a high school degree, those without a high school degree, like the labor market in every way, shape and form is tight. And so that that's the reality of the circumstance. And productivity is low, as Cameron I like. Like it, it's structurally low, despite all the promises, the great promises of the productivity boom that we're, I'm still waiting to hear, you know, it's still pretty low. You know, this reminds me a bit of, I used to cover a lot of the robotics and automation stocks. And there was a period that was like a meme moment for those stocks as well back in 2017. Uh, where everybody got obsessed with this idea that you know, we were going to completely automate everything and robots, this and that, and the stocks were going through the roof. And I was looking and and saying, okay, well, these robotics indices, if you look at the relative performance, it is the PMI. It's just the PMI. It absolutely tracks purchasing managers index, manufacturing activity, South Korea exports, for example, Japanese machine tools, they all overlay and they're all the same. So there's an aspect of knowing why something is trading a certain way and removing the narrative away from it, which is that even the most secular companies can be very cyclical. I mean, that's the trap that that the semiconductors fell into back over the past couple of years, the weakness in those names. Yeah, secular growth stories, still cyclical businesses. And so you always have to be aware of where you are within a broader secular uptrend when you're buying things that could have narrative and meme associated with them, because the drawdowns can be positively brutal um, if you if you're banking on future and 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 the potential for this technology to change everything and you forget the fact that there are very very cyclical aspects to a lot of the adoption curves i i think actually one of the things that that you brought up uh, a few minutes ago which was what drove the equity market strength during the original tech bubble right was a capex cycle yeah and a capex cycle like if anything you know it's like the most traditional, you know, business-driven economic cyclical upturn that you know has ever existed. Like that's that's basically how economic cycles, you know, in many ways have been driven or extended for decades and decades. And I think that's so interesting because often people will try to say, well, this time is different. There's something totally different about how this, that, or the other thing technology works out. Well, in the most different period of technology technological innovation right in the internet i mean the internet was a big deal there's no question about that what actually drove the overall economy and markets was like building factories it was like the the same thing as building factories right it just happened to be fiber cable instead of factories but the same dynamics are, are the are the driver it's I think it's really underappreciated because we like to look back and think that, oh, it's just because now we we have this great new technology and that it actually was, you know, old picks and shovels and digging ditches and all of these things that 
are have great multiplier effects on them from an earnings and a growth standpoint, but it also helps to explain the recession afterwards and why the market was so weak for such a long period because you were not only coming off of a big capex boom that really boosted corporate spending and you had to digest all of that didn't necessarily affect the consumer that time around um but you also had it all reflected within corporate balance sheets as well because they were levering up so much doing all these kind of shenanigans to make these kind of investments look profitable in the here and now, even though they weren't going to pay off for multiple years going forward. So there's a lot of underappreciated dynamics as to why growth was so strong, why productivity was good, and should we really be using the same playbook this time around to assume margins go back to all-time highs? I'm not sure. I'm with you there. Well, I know we maybe in sort of uh, closing arguments here or what you want people to kind of take away. I, I know I know this is I know this is tough and I always, you know, I but I, I want you to kind of dust off your, your crystal balls, uh, so to speak, and kind of give folks um, just maybe in closing, like what they should be expecting within the next sort of year, both in terms of maybe if we can focus on kind of asset prices and also just sort of more economic reality because we know uh, those two don't always move perfectly one to one. Um, so maybe Cameron, I could kind of um, you know call on you first here to kind of sum up everything that we've been talking about. What should folks be expecting, both from economic performance for the next year and then uh, you know asset prices as well? I'm not going to say high volatility because it's something everybody loves to say. It is literally the most cop-out answer. I'm guilty of it. But then you look at the VIX and I'm like, well, actually, that was a terrible call. Uh, <laughs> right? Like, okay, maybe if I'm looking at the move index, like high volatility. But I, you know, clearly, I my, my view is that we're, we're not going to have a market that's similar to 2016 or 2018, like through 2019, we're, sorry, 2016 or 2019 or 2020, where you have escape velocity, you get into a trending market, and you have this revision up cycle, everybody chasing positioning. Um, that's not my base case. My base case is, is stuck in a sideways chop. Can we potentially trade above 4,200 for a time? Sure, it would be the pain trade. And that's almost one reason why I think it's going to happen, just because there's such there's been such a strong line in the sand um, around 42, but that can quickly get rejected. Um, uh, mostly as people sell into strength, we'll see how, how powerful the selling would be uh, in, in that scenario. So from there, then you know you're looking at downside. Depending on if we have a recession or not, you know would be you back to retest October lows possibly, and you can do the math on on what combo of earnings and, and valuation to get there. But to your point about recession, I think it's going to take a heck of a lot longer than people are expecting. Uh, that if you look, you know, Fed starts raising in 2004, pauses 20, 2006, unemployment doesn't even tick up until 2008. Housing employment doesn't roll over until 2007. And like that was the biggest house of cards ever, right? So if it takes that long, um, uh, back in that time when you had much more structural, I think, underneath the surface uh, issues, it's going to take a long time for it to, it's to work its way through. And it's hard because I think the, the biggest remaining question is on loan growth. And loan growth has always been a lagging indicator. It's been a reaction to what's happening in the broader economy. So if you look at H8 data, what you can see is that loan growth rolls over kind of as the recession is starting and it troughs after the recession ends. Um, 
is it could it be different this time around? Meaning that are, will we see because of banking issues, regional banking issues, regional banks pull back on loan growth, which is an important driver of economic activity, the av availability of, of liquidity of capital. If they start pulling back on loan growth because they have to shore up their own balance sheets, do we see that actually trickle through what happens through the real economy? That's, of course, what the Fed is starting to highlight and talking about how it's doing the tightening for them. The problem is, again, it's usually a lagging indicator and very, very lagging at that. So I don't know how reliable it will be to tell us that we have a problem on our hands until we already have a problem on our hands. But I would say that history would tell you re recessions take time and that it's likely going to take a heck of a lot longer. It already has than people are expecting. I mean, I was remembering people thought we'd be in one in the first quarter when like, well, not I mean, not with this non-farm payrolls print. So, yeah, I I absolutely uh, uh, share Cameron's uh, overall view that macro cycles are very slow moving. And like, I know all of us who are, you know, in the commentary game are, you know, every day it's like, what's the next thing and what's the next thing? And what's the next thing? That's why markets are, and economies are interesting. Um, there's certainly plenty of incremental information to be thinking about and digesting. But the reality is that they take a long time. Macro cycles are super boring um, <laughs> that way. And like, honestly, if you took if you if you if you took a, a step away and you weren't like us in it every single day wrestling with it and you just, you know, talk to the person on the street, they'd, you'd say, they'd say, well, how's the cycle going? Well, I don't know. Unemployment's fallen over the course of the last year and, you know, payrolls are a little lower than they were a year ago and it was pretty strong back then and now it's only kind of a you know it's moderately good right now and like you you almost wouldn't know the difference right to the man on the street they don't see hardly any difference today than they did you know six or 12 months ago and that gives you an indication of just how slow moving this is and so i think um rather than prognosticate on any particular asset outcome my thought would be more over the course of the next year, let's say, that you're better positioned to fade extreme views of what will transpire. That is probably the best positioning, um, which like it's, it's not quite volatility because uh, it has been lower than I think any of us expected. It's more just like there's going to be times where everyone gets over their skis in one direction or over their skis in another. I remember, I mean, this was this was kind of uh, kind of funny, but right before SVB, like you know, a day before SVB, I'd been for a month before that talking about how we could go 50 basis points, and you know, the the Fed was behind the curve, and then it got priced in at 80%, and I was like, ah, don't get greedy, take that position off, right? That's totally, you know, like let's not get over our skis on the higher for longer either, right? That was a bit of dumb luck to be clear. But I think it's indicative of what we see in the cycle, which is that people are skewed in one direction and it's definitely going to be higher for longer. And then we're going to have a depression, you know, a, a terrible recession and we're going to go back and forth. And so looking at all the places where those extremities are priced and fading them against what is probably a very slow moving moderation of economic activity is going to be probably the way to go. And, you know, that's going to take discipline and calmness in the face of what will inevitably be a lot of information chop. Um, but, you know, I think if you can if you can hold the line there, you're going to do pretty well over the course of the next uh, 12 months.
Bob, do you think we've gotten to one of those extremes in pricing uh, based on you know, what's being currently reflected in, in the interest rate futures? Yeah, I mean I, that's that's what I think. I was I was just um, I was just writing something. I put something out just before we got on this podcast, which is like you know earnings. Uh, sorry, uh, growth uh, surprises have been you know over the course of the last like four weeks have been a strong, a massive surge in growth surprises relative to expectations on the positive side, and you know the two-year bond during that same period is down. The two-year yield is down, like disconnected from reality. Well, that looks. That looks like a relatively extreme pricing, all things considered. You know, stocks, I think, are they're sort of more structurally mispriced than they are tactically mispriced. Um, but I think, you know, that's an example of a place where you you might have an opportunity there. Uh, and inevitably, there'll be some shift and, you know, and you'll want to fade the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And so it's kind of a weird market in that way um, when we, you know. Trend has really been your friend for 15 years, right? In one form or yeah. another. And now what we're saying is fade is your friend and that people haven't really met fade. They don't really know him. It's very odd. We get matching haircuts and like nice, nice tight fade. Fade hair. Oh, I like that. I like that. Um, that's good. That's good. Yeah, that's, I like that. Awesome. Well, Cameron and Bob, it's been great, um, you know, just trying to get out of your way and, and listen to your insights. And I think uh, listeners, you should definitely follow the work that um, Bob and Cameron do. Maybe if I could ask you both to just give a little bit of information about where you are and what the best way is to either follow you or get more information about your work. Maybe Cameron, I could fall, uh, call on you, call on you first there. Sure. You can find me on Twitter, just Cameron Dawson. I'm also on LinkedIn. I try to post on both places. And then uh, newedgewealth.com, you can get the weekly piece that myself and my team put out uh, for weekly commentary about what's going on in the world. And still nobody picked up on my, I, I bet people, if you can if you can get all of the niche references, I don't know what I'll do, but like you'll get 10 points or a prize. And it's, you know, so at least there'll be some fun rock and roll references. It was over my head, I have to admit. Um <laughs> Maybe a little more country music and we'll be uh, in good shape there. There was an Alan Jackson song in there. Come on. Yeah, but not all 10. I mean, holy mackerel. I know. I know. You're not a Coheed and Cambria fan? <laughs> You're just more cultured than we are, Cameron. That's, That's it. That That's is, yeah, sci-fi, not metal, is cultured. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, for those of you looking for uh, what I'm doing, um, less obscure music references, uh, but a fair amount of relatively boring analysis on macro stats on an ongoing basis. Uh, you can find me at Bobby Unlimited on Twitter. Um, and my uh, day job is uh, as co-founder and CEO of Unlimited, um, PM of the uh, HFND ETF, um, which you know you can go to unlimitedfunds.com, check that, uh, check out what we're doing there, and and check out the ETF to see if it's makes sense for your portfolio. Excellent. Well, Cameron and Bob, thank you both uh, so much again. And uh, I'll have to do it again soon. This was a really fun conversation for me. So I'm sure listeners took a lot of ways well.